Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. The countdown has begun to Southeast Linux Fest 2023. I am so excited. I cannot begin to put into words how excited I am. I am on my way to the airport right after this, and I will be flying down tonight. I'll be there the rest of the week. It is going to be an absolutely spectacular event. If you've been living under a rock, and I hear the, I, you hear the word Southeast Linux Fest, and it doesn't mean anything to you. All across the country, every year, people get together to learn and celebrate and grow in their professional experience with technology. And for years... I went to industry conference after industry conference, and they were all, it was based off of whatever industry technology was working with at the time. And a lot of them were Windows-based. And so the Linux Fest really comes out of the Linux user group. It started with a bunch of people getting together to learn and explore open source and Linux-related software, and eventually evolved into large gatherings. And so there's a number of them across the country. There's Linux Fest Northwest, there's Texas Linux Fest, Ohio Linux Fest, Scale, uh, and Southeast Linux Fest. Southeast Linux Fest for me is ha- has a special place in my heart. I would say every conference has its own unique take to it. Each conference has its own unique spin. What I would tell you the difference uh, the brand differentiator at Southeast Linux Fest is truly the community and their ability to tie into what people are what 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 people are doing what individual people are doing you have if you're looking to meet up with big wigs and 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 you know rub elbows with the big names there are larger conferences to be sure there's larger attended conferences to be sure there are conferences in areas that are more scenic, to be sure. But Southeast Linux Fest gets people hired. Why? Because it focuses strongly on building individual relationships. You don't hear people saying, oh, I'm there for the spectacular speakers, although there are spectacular speakers. You don't hear people saying, I'm there because I can't wait to learn all of the phenomenal information that's going to be released at Southeast Linux Fest isn't available anywhere else, although oftentimes stuff like that does happen. People celebrate Southeast Linux Fest and people are most excited for Southeast Linux Fest. You watch inside of the Geek Lab and other chat rooms. People are excited largely because it's about relationship building. All year, I wait for the opportunity to sit in a room with people that are smarter than me. And I just shut up and I listen. And I learn something every day I'm there. And when the day concludes, it gets to the nighttime and we're sitting around with a couple of of beverages and just having a great time. And so if you don't have plans or haven't currently have plans, I'd highly encourage you to try to make it out to Southeast Linux Fest this weekend. It'll be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We'll be doing live streams all three of those days. We're going to have guests on the air. We're going to be able to bring you information straight from the show floor 
and get a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes to put on a Linux conference because more effort, time, and money than you could ever possibly imagine goes into making some of these things happen. It was phenomenal to be back last year after being gone with COVID, actually being in person. Absolutely phenomenal to be back. This time, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be all out. And so we've got sponsors have come back and some of the people that weren't able to make it last year are, are going to be there this year. I will be in the corner booth, Noah's booth, as always, again, bringing you live coverage from Southeast Linux Fest as well as the other places that we go to as well. So highly, highly encourage you to come out to Southeast Linux Fest again, Friday, Saturday and Sunday this weekend. I recently had the opportunity to check out distrochooser.de. So this is a website designed to help new Linux users select a distribution that suits their needs. So here is what the tool does. You, you are, are presented with a clean web interface. And basically the idea is people oftentimes look to say, okay, I want to get into Linux, but I don't know which distro to use. And so often what that leads to is this very uncanny process of bouncing from one distro to the next and trying to see what meets your needs. Now, the problem is you're really you're fighting two things. So the first is you're looking for an underlying base distro. That's part of the equation. The other part of the equation is you're looking for a desktop environment. Now, weirdly, when I, I, I have debates about this with other geeks and other nerd friends of mine, and oftentimes people focus very heavily on the underlying base. I'm really more of a desktop environment kind of guy. That's mostly where you interact. I mean, aside from the package manager, once you're installing a package, or a package other than the version that is available in your particular distro, largely your, your experience is going to be dictated to by the desktop environment. And so over time, there has been a number of different distros that have sought to fix this problem by way of giving you access to multiple distro repositories in use, using and utilizing container technology. And so regardless of what distro you're running, you have the opportunity to run software on basically any distro because of container technology. So for a long time, people had just, they try and see what works. I'm going to install this distro. I'll run it for a little bit. I'll see if it, it tickles my fancy. If it does, I'll hang out onto it a little bit. If not, I'll go somewhere else. Now, the problem with going somewhere else is it means you're constantly playing this, this cat and mouse game. You fix one problem and you create five more. So you've gone for, you wanted newer software. So you went from Ubuntu over to Arch or Endeavor OS. You install Endeavor OS and sure enough, you get the latest packages and that's fantastic. The downside is now you go to run that particular piece of software that work wants you to have or this, that, the other, and you get a library error. Well, this library is now out of date and doesn't run with this particular software. It doesn't work there. And so you're, you're trading pain points. Distrochooser.de uh, goes beyond just being a tool to help you choose uh, a distro. It gives you a whole bunch of information and resources, things that new Linux users might not think about. So they have an about section and the about section offers an explanation of the purpose and functionality um, of the of the distro chooser tool. And so it helps you kind of color your perspective on how does this tool work and how can I leverage it for to help me understand uh, what I'm looking for. And so if you're a system administrator and you're looking for a distribution that mimics your production environment, or maybe you're a system administrator and you want to track ahead. This is very popular in the Red Hat Fedora realm. 
people running Fedora ahead of what's so they can find out what's coming down the pipe with rel and interestingly enough i believe red hat's actually switching their internal builds from uh red hat corporate standard build over to a fedora build in large part because they want to stay ahead of that curve or allow people to to stay ahead of the curve the, the other thing they have is they have an faq section and this is particularly helpful because it answers some of the most common questions that you're going to run into as a new linux user it's going to become a, a, it makes it a very valuable tool in helping you try to choose what you're looking for. Uh, one of the things that is beneficial, I guess, and, and really kind of what we tried to do uh, with the original Linux Delta site was give people a place to comment and review. And unfortunately, distro chooser does not offer that. Um, which I think would be really helpful. And, and the, the reason was, and, and again, we tried to take a crack at this as well. When I go to purchase something and I go to Amazon or B&H, a lot of times what informs my decision almost more than anything else, particularly if I'm looking at one or two products and I'm trying to compare and contrast the differences and similarities between them, oftentimes the deciding factor will be I will sort by most reviewed. You can do top review or highest review. The problem is you might get three people that think this is the best thing under the sun. Meanwhile, there's like 2,500 people over here. They don't necessarily think it's the best thing under the sun in part because there's 2,500 of them that voted. So maybe it gets three stars out of five instead of five stars. But 2,300 people are using this product over here and like three people are using that product over there. So quantity of telling me here is where the momentum is was super helpful. When we launched Linux Delta, it was very clear to me a lot of people are using OpenSUSE, more people than I would have ever thought. But if you're looking for a day-to-day -day driver desktop environment, you're looking for something that you can drive and, and, and use day-to-day, -day, OpenSUSE is a great way to do it. So I think a, a little bit of help by way of user reviews or incorporating some feedback would be really helpful because it would it would allow people to see what other people in the community are choosing, why they're choosing it, what things they like about it, what things they don't like about it, and you know essentially kind of short circuit the the um, the process. But DistroChooser DE, you'll you'll head over there and it asks you a series of questions. So it says, hey, I am looking, I, you know, I'm trying to use Linux for security or for uh, to, to stay anonymous on the internet. Or maybe I'm looking to daily drive a Linux uh, distribution. Maybe you're looking uh, for something so that you can, again, work as a system administrator. And then it walks you through all of these, uh, not, I don't want to say pitfalls, but just the way that you plan on using it. I can troubleshoot problems myself or no, you know what? I really need somebody to be able to help me or I need support. And so what would you recommend there? And it, it goes into your background. Do you understand Linux? Do you know what Linux is? Do you, uh, do you have some knowledge in troubleshooting it, this, that, and the other? Yes, I do. No, I don't. That sort of thing. And eventually you get to the end. And once you've answered all of the questions that they ask you, it says, and they, they even have like some, some graphical representation, right? So for example, oftentimes they'll, they'll present two interfaces and one is like a Windows desktop and the other is like a Mac OS uh, desktop. And they'll ask, you know, which one of these seems more familiar to you? Which ones, which do you think is, uh, you know, is, is, is more approachable? And those kinds, they use all of that information, they collect it all, and then they spit out 
a answer or a result. And it'll say, hey, here's all the questions you answer. And then it gives you basically a rundown and will say, here are your, here are the choices and it'll rank them. So it'll say, you know, top is, you know, Linux Mint or Zorin OS, or Elementary OS or Pop OS or Ubuntu. And depending on what you pick, it will, it will rank all of those. And then it'll put little marks next to the answers that you chose and where that distro fits. So if you, you checked all the boxes, it might say, you know, Ubuntu meets all of these requirements then you might get down and it might say you know uh uh zubuntu it does all of these things except you check the thing that said you didn't want any third-party services by default you wanted it all to be uh you know completely free and libre and so they'll put a little red x next to it and saying this distro it meets all of your other requirements but it's missing this one and I, I just found it, a, and then of course, the further on you, further down you go, the more red X's you're going to get, but it allows you to kind of get your bearings, right? There's a lot of times people say, well, give Linux a shot or give Linux. Okay. That sounds great on paper. Tell me where to start. Tell me how I get started by doing this. Tell me what I can do uh, to, to get my feet wet. I don't even really know where to begin. And so I think distrochooser.de is a fantastic little service. Highly recommend you check them out. You can learn more at distro, uh, distrochooser.de. And of course, we'll have uh, links for you available in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of June 4th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Inkscape has put out a call for testing of its beta of version 1.3. Canonical has announced a fully containerized, immutable Ubuntu desktop. NixOS 2305 has been released with a Linux 6.1 LTS kernel and GNOME 44 or KDE Plasma 527. BlendOS 3 promises support for nine Linux distros. Alma Linux, Crystal Linux, Kali Linux, and Rocky Linux are among the newly supported distributions as containers. MIDI is getting an update with MIDI 2.0 support coming to the Linux 6.5 kernel. The Linux Foundation Europe, the relatively new European arm of the Linux Foundation, has announced the launch of the RISC-V software ecosystem project, called RISE. Linux-first hardware vendors System76 and Tuxedo computers have both released updates to their existing line of laptops. And speaking of Linux-first hardware, System76 has teased its new Nebula Linux desktop workstation. In security news, analysis by Trend Micro of the Linux variant of a new ransomware strain has revealed that the malware dubbed Black Suit has significant similarities with another ransomware family called Royal. In AI news, the Folding at Home project made headlines throughout the COVID-19 pandemic for marshalling unused computing power to explore the protein folding search space to tackle the novel coronavirus. This decentralized paradigm was heralded for bringing people together around a common problem and crowdsourcing computing power efficiently. But what if the computing power and problem-solving infrastructure were inversed? In other words, what if individuals could run their own projects by tapping into accumulated computing power and the tools for biological experimentation? Lab DAO is making that dream a reality with its Plex platform. Plex is an open-source command-line tool designed to make not only computing resources but also a variety of biological machine learning tools, coined BioML, accessible across a variety of backgrounds. Guanaco, an open-source chatbot developed by the University of Washington researchers, attempts to compete with ChatGPT's performance while using a great deal less time and resources during training. 
Guanaco, named after a llama relative from South America, is based on the llama language model and uses a brand new fine-tuning technique called Culora. The internet is up in arms this week over a policy change at Reddit that threatens to kill third-party apps. And so this is hugely impactful to the Linux and open source crowd. And here's why. On May 31st, Reddit announced that they were raising the price to make calls to their API from being free to a level that is essentially going to kill every third-party app on Reddit. And the problem here is it's bad enough when you have an environment and or a platform that isn't open. It is at least tolerable to a lot of us that even if you're using a non-open platform, that if there is API access to said platform, that you're able to use Libre or open source software to communicate with the non-free or proprietary platform. It at least allows you to use it and at least you allows you to participate. Well, by charging for access to the API, you're basically making it so that you either have to have a subscription service in order to offset the cost necessary to access the API and make those third-party apps available, or, and what is more likely here, those third-party apps will just go away. Now, on the surface, you might say, well, what's the big deal? Just go to reddit.com. The principle of having centralized services, the principle of having platforms that only a select people have access to is hugely problematic. Additionally, and I've heard this, I don't know how many times, we talk about alternative platforms. We talk about alternative video platforms to YouTube. We talk about alternative you know, uh, conversation or thread platforms to Reddit. And certainly I'll make a couple of suggestions here during this segment, but the reality is a lot of these services are primarily meant to get you in front of eyeballs. And so the moment that a service or a platform moves away from its ability to place your content or your message or your question or whatever it is in front of the most amount of eyeballs, that platform, that resource, that tool begins to lose its power. It begins to lose credibility and it begins to lose its advantage. So is there an alternative to Reddit? Of course there are alternatives to Reddit. We're going to recommend a couple, but the reason that people participate in Reddit, the reason that I go to Reddit, if I'm looking on buying a product or a service or something like that, I want to hear what other people, what their experience is with that product or with that service. And oftentimes what you will see is you'll have four, you know, you know, I ask a question, what do you think of this particular microphone or this particular computer or this, whatever it is. Oftentimes what you'll see is this three or four comments immediately bought one, didn't like it, bought one, liked it, bought one, didn't like it, whatever. Then you get the guy or gal that comes in and says, bought this five years ago, had it for, I've had it for 10 years. It works really, really well. I've tried these other seven things. These didn't work. This one worked really well. And they, they, they will just, it, it just becomes very evident in a very short amount of time that you found the person that has a tremendous amount of experience with the thing that you're looking for, or maybe it's solving a problem and you find the person that has a tremendous amount of experience solving the problem to include medical issues. And you get people that work in the medical community working day in and day out with those particular kind of issues. And they're able to answer those questions that only happens. That's only effective. That only works when you're able to place the content, the question, the, whatever it is in front of the maximum amount of eyeballs. And so when you have third party access to these things, you retain the ability to 
place your content, place your question, place whatever it is in front of a number of eyeballs, but you preserve the ability for you yourself to remain on free or libre based software. Well, the change in Reddit is going to fundamentally eviscerate your ability to do that. And as a part of that, Reddit has, is, is, well, I shouldn't say Reddit because it's not Reddit as a whole, but individual Reddit communities are going dark to protest the third party API changes. And so some developers have started looking at the cost of accessing Reddit's API and said, yeah, we're just not gonna be able to do this. So we're just killing the app in 30 days. And you have a number of communities that have said, we're going dark for 48 hours. We're just going to shut down in protest of being able to, of, of not being able to do this on Reddit. Now, here's the thing from Reddit's perspective, they, their platform is monetized and is useful when you have people using the platform itself, when you're able to pull things through third party apps using an API, you lose the ability to place content in front of people. You lose the, the ability to track people. You lose the, you lose a lot of the abilities of the things that we like in the first place for having third party apps, but Reddit isn't going to like because it isn't great for their business model. And so I think a couple of things are going to happen. I think on one hand, I think Reddit is going to lose some users. I think there's some people that are just going to say, you know what, if I can't browse Reddit the way I want to, if I can't use it from an app that I want to, I just won't be on that platform. Not there with Reddit yet. Anything that basically has a, a fairly simple web UI and I can just log in uh, at the moment, that's good enough for me. But there are absolutely social networks. There are absolutely places that have become such a pain to operate, interact with that I just don't use those services anymore. And this is very much a step in that direction for Reddit. The second thing, though, and I think this is positive, in the same way that when Elon Musk took over Twitter and a lot of changes came down the pipe and a lot of people didn't like the changes that came down the pipe, all of a sudden Mastodon got this massive boost. Mastodon got this massive boost from people that didn't even really care about Mastodon before, but because it was seen as an alternative to Twitter, because it was seen as a place that couldn't be shut down, because it was seen as a place that couldn't be taken over, people flock to it. And I see now on Twitter, people right next to their Twitter name will put their Mastodon username. So I think that's done great things for the, uh, for the Mastodon community. I think what's going to happen here with Reddit is uh, services like Lemmy or projects like Lemmy are going to get a huge influx because people like the ability to post content and have that content evaluated by other people and then respond. It's a way to build community. And so if you're not familiar with Lemmy, you can learn more at lemmy.ml. By default, they have a, a, um, a hosted version. So you can just sign up for an account like you would on Reddit. Just click on the sign up button. But unlike Reddit, Lemmy has the ability for you to self-host. Um, and so you have the opportunity to essentially host your own version of Reddit and participate in, uh, in, in, in community conversations. And as people start to move over to Lemmy from Reddit, that community grows. As that community grows, more eyeballs become available on the content. As more eyeballs become available on the content, Reddit is going to start to lose, it will start to, it'll start to dwindle. It'll start to lose its validity and other platforms will take its place. And the more open that alternative competing platforms like Lemmy can be, the more users that they attract, the bigger it's going to snowball. And so I would highly recommend, if nothing else, sign up for an account at lemmy.ml, better yet, self-host, 
But if yes, at least sign up for an account so that you can exist inside of that community and that you can support platforms that encourage a community of privacy, false enthusiasts, and people that are eating their own dog food. People are developing a service for what you're doing. The other, the other side of this is great too, right? So with, with Reddit, you know, if you... Actually, I won't pick on Reddit specifically, but any of these proprietary platforms, if you have a problem or you have an issue, you've got to reach out to their support and go through all the things. Places like Lemmy, because they're all open source projects themselves, well, they just have a matrix room. So you just go on Lemmy, click on matrix chat, and it, it has a matrix.to link, drops you right into the room, and you can start having a conversation with them. You want support? Click on Lemmy support. And it, again, it, it sends them a message. They're available on Mastodon. So what you start to see is a network of open source and FOSS related tools working together to kind of exist in tandem with all of the proprietary alternatives. Now, the, I think what's top of mind for me is when I start looking at what's going to have the, the, the largest long term effect, companies rise and fall all the time. Right. But in the sixth or seventh or eighth you know, iteration of of mainstream chat platforms, there's still the dudes out there that are like, yeah, I'm an IRC baby. I'm going to be hanging out with a whole bunch of them at Southeast Linux Fest this, uh, this coming weekend. And we bridged the IRC room to the Matrix room to the Matrix room. So from your perspective, if you join any of the Southeast Linux Fest rooms, you can join from any platform you like, but open source and Libre software is, is empowering the ability to connect all these platforms together and we're dragging along all of the people that started with IRC because it worked just fine in the late 1980s. And guess what? It still continues to work today. So there really isn't a good reason for a lot of those people to move off those platforms. You don't care about, you know, emojis and replies and all the rest of it and animated GIFs. You just want to be able to talk from one person to the other. They settle into that and they carry it for a long time. And because of that, because of the open nature of things like IRC, even in 2023, when there are what I would consider to be much better alternatives to chat platforms, guess what? IRC users can participate just fine. In fact, one of the best bridging technologies between Matrix and other services is IRC because it is in, it was entirely open from the beginning. It also helps that Matrix was largely designed around IRC, but the idea stands, right? If you have all of this available, it means it's very, very simple to be backwards compatible. And so, I would encourage people to participate in the 48-hour, uh, you know, going dark portion of Reddit and send a message to them that, hey, you know, this isn't cool. We don't want this. Matt Hicks joining us, the CEO of Red Hat. Welcome in, sir. So I, I have to say, so this is, it's fun to be back with you in this role because I've interviewed you uh, a, a number of times as the yeah, first time yeah. as the CEO. Yeah. So right off the bat, I guess I'll ask, how have you liked the transition? How has the new role been treating you? I um, I love it. I think it's it's great company, great time in the space. I like what Red Hat stands for, how we work. Mm -hmm. and. Yeah, I started in IT. I've had a lot of development roles from them, so it's uh, it's it's very humbling to be in this role and spot. So, uh, but yeah, doing my best. I enjoying it a lot. So, if you went back 16 years and you went and talked to the Matt Hicks that's coming in to do IT and has software development and 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 is just a geek to the core, and you told that Matt Hicks that you're going to be CEO of Red Hat someday, what what do you think your response would have been? I don't. I don't think that. I don't think I would have believed you or. Well, and for me, 
I've always had that technology-centered focus on if you can make this work for customers, like good things will happen. So mm -hmm. um, it's surprising to me how far that mentality uh, can get you, but that that was what I walked into Red Hat excited to do. Uh -huh. That's probably every role I've had that I've been excited to do. So uh, something I get to carry forward now, but 16 years ago, I don't think I would have seen, uh, seen that outcome. So you have been in a hands-on role for a long time and that you know that I you know people that talk about you talk about your passion to be hands-on and and your core as a technologist how has that shaped your leadership of Red Hat it i love the the intuition that i think for most of our roles you have to have a little bit of intuition in a domain that you know well it might mm -hmm. be in sales or in finance and for me it's in technology and it's mm -hmm. and specifically in open source technology of how do we come up with a model that works well with the communities and works well with the customers. And I like having that intuition. At the other point, though, we have a really, really good team of people with arguably better skill sets in each one of these domains. So I love being able to um, connect gaps mm -hmm. between them. That's where I spend a lot of my time these days. Like, know your core intuition as to whether um, it feels right on this as an approach, but then spend a lot of time, like how do you bridge Chris's engineering understanding with his Shesh's product understanding or Larry's sales understanding or um, Carolyn's operation understanding like that. Bridge is where I spend a lot of my time today, which I also, I enjoy. That's yeah. uh, started as a consultant. That's sort of a core skill set of a consultant. Yeah, to be able to know how to leverage something to your advantage yeah, and then help other people. That's. Can you talk a little bit about how you've pushed for managed cloud services at Red Hat? That's been a, a paradigm shift that's occurred at Red Hat. You know, can you talk a little bit about how, as that paradigm shift has changed, it changes the way that Red Hat serves its customers? It does. Where and in the in the shift, I often describe it as we're we're model neutral. Okay. We we're going to contribute to the code. We're going to know every line of code. Mm -hmm. But there's a there's a use case, it could be in startups, it could be in enterprises that don't want to differentiate on running. Mm -hmm. And the public clouds really started this. Like I've seen plenty of managed service offerings that have failed over the past, but the public clouds, I think, showed a lot of customers this can be done well. We will have a foot in both camps always to say, if, um, if you can differentiate by running the code and co-creating with us, great. We know that model. We're also going to learn how to run the software really, really well, be the tip of the spear, because it'll make the product better. Now, the fun fact, in the, in the old, old days of OpenShift, it started as a managed service. And a lot of what we learned was from running a public, free, multi-tenant hosted service on okay. it. And it just makes the product better and better. And so we're just doing that more formally at a broader scale. But we don't... Customers can have one foot in the managed services camp, one foot of running our own software. They can flex in between them. We actually have commercial models to, to let you change because we don't really care about tying you into one or the other. They're sure. complementary. But it is, it's a new muscle for us to build. It's closer to my IT experience yeah. than core product engineering. It's the marriage of the two. But your understanding of knowing what the clients expect and what the what the end demands are, mm -hmm. but also being in a position of leadership to be able to affect that change, yeah, that empowers you to to make some of those changes, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it it goes beyond. I've gained an appreciation for you can create product all day, mm -hmm. but in this role, 
you also have to understand the distribution of that. How's your sales team incented? Like as a company, mm -hmm. are you completely plumbed and aligned to your strategy? And I've, I have I've loved that part. I don't know if my sales team's like, I'm an engineer, I'll go. Um, that's where I spend a lot of time learning and understanding and uh, making that strategy work across every component of our go-to-market, not just we have a really, really great product on the shelf, mm -hmm. but there's sales conflict or partner conflict and we can't get it to customers. So that's what uh, I've really liked that about the new roles, having the foot in the technology side and then um, having the impact to get it to customers faster. Um, Can you talk about your rationale for driving uh, Red Hat from a freely downloadable operating system to a subscription model with Red Hat Enterprise. What was the motivation behind that and, and how does that serve customers? Whew, I um, Yeah, and you mean the early, early rail days, right. Yeah. right? Now this one, this credit goes to Paul, okay. I swear. But I was, I lived through that time period. I was a Red Hat box product user as a consumer. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I was a hobbyist for it. I tinkered with Linux. I learned a lot of software from the kernel. But uh, amazingly, I was also a consultant. And in an engagement, it shifted to, I was working with a partner. It was a CRM partner at the time, mm -hmm. running software. I, I was going to be there for six months and gone how do I get a Linux distribution that actually has a life cycle and it's going to have some staying power beyond my engagement? Yeah. And when I looked around, like that what is what led me to RHEL at the time. And so I actually like from, which was RHEL 2.1, that yep. was RHEL's first release. But the, the subscription model separate from the pay, it was the life cycle piece that I can run this and get everything working. And I know we'll get security updates on this mm. for... You know, at the time it was early days in Linux, it was like, hey, you're saying a lot of years after this, but I know it's going to work for this customer yeah. after I'm gone with it. And that that was that gravity to with RHEL where it's like, I really like this model. I love that it's open and I can tinker with it as a hobbyist, mm -hmm. but then I can go into a big customer and have some confidence because I believe in this as a platform. The pay piece was a separate piece to me. If like, okay, that's what lets Red Hat actually make this model work. But that was a big driving piece of what I experienced that sort of led me to Red Hat was having yeah. to put both those worlds. So I think the, the advantages come relatively obviously, right? You know, the ability to leverage your technical background and your, and your new position of leadership. What are some of the challenges you've found as you've moved into your new role? I would say the, the number one challenge, and I probably hit this on day one, and there are two parts of it. Mm -hmm. The negative part is there's a whole lot of distractions out there, <laughs> whether it's uh, economic, social, anything that can sort of pull you away from the core of what we do. Okay. Positive side, there's a million exciting opportunities in open source that we could go chase right yeah. now. The challenge was getting people really, really focused on what do we do well, and we can't solve every problem. It's like mm -hmm. we're going to be the best platform company out there, which means like in the case of AI, we talked about a lot this week, we will be the platform for training and deploying AI. Mm -hmm. We won't do our own models. Like I'm hopeful the open source community, yeah. I think will generate some crazy good ones, uh -huh. but that's not our space. And so I'm like getting 20,000 plus people focused on, on a few things uh -huh. when you have distractions at both negative and positive, that was probably the day one challenge and uh, 
I don't know what day I'm on right now. It, it continues to be that balancing act, but it's but it's powerful. I love that. If like you get, I've always said when Red Hat applies their passion and creativity to an area, mm -hmm. we tend to do really really well. So that's my influencing job is get them focused on just a few things and and let them apply their individual talent to do it really really well. And then I guess in the broader scheme, we're trying to just stay in our lane. Yep. So, you know, letting the companies that do those other things well, let them continue to function and then support them when they need a platform. Absolutely. As a platform provider, I usually say like you're in almost every deployment, unless it's a super technical company, mm -hmm. you're involved with a partner. Mm -hmm. yep. And a lot of them, they could be system integrators, hardware providers, ISVs. If you can't hold in your lane and say, like, this is the lane that I'm going to do really well, and it's how I will enable you, um, you can be hard to partner with mm. if you're always going to mm -hmm. step into someone else's space or it's deal by deal. So I think that discipline is it's as powerful for our partner ecosystem as it is for us okay. to say, we're going to do this really, really well, and we need all of your help to plug a lot of gaps around this but we're not gonna claim we're gonna do everything. Yeah. The draw, I think, for customers have big problems. We wanna do big solutions. You want to solve everything? Uh -huh. Well, like it's actually a lot more efficient if we solve the things we know. Yes. Uh, there are other really innovative companies that'll plug gaps and there's um, an amplifying power. And, and, they, and you don't end up stepping on anyone's toes then. Yeah, yeah. You've talked about focusing Red Hat to operate in a new environment. How do you see that playing out? It's a few, well, I feel like uh, every aspect of this changes. So if you look at hardware, the, the hardware landscape is changing. And you could bucket that in the edge capabilities of our world. When I started, mm -hmm. our world was pretty much rack and stack data centers. And okay. you would have a Dell or HP option to run Linux on. So mm -hmm. um, midway through my journey, we added public cloud. And so our world became, how do we run on virtual hardware as well as we do on physical hardware? Mm -hmm. um, Edge now, different set of vendors. Like we were announced uh, the General Motors partnership. Like mm. we'll run in cars. Um, you'll see some exciting announcements tomorrow, like running in industrial projects. And they're not data centers. It's not RackSec. Our, the processors are similar. It's ARM or Intel processors. It's new providers. It's new environments. So the hardware layer is changing. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the other end of the sandwich, the software layer is changing. Mm -hmm because the I write all the code and deploy it to prod, we know that space in DevOps well at mm -hmm. this point. Like we know how to do this with RHEL, we know how to do this in OpenShift. The, and I'm gonna add a trained model to that and put it out also to the edge and ask it a bunch of questions is really new. And so I think software is changing about as fast as hardware and um, GPU accelerators and eventually quantum is changing. And so mm -hmm. that, that environment of, how do we keep that tether between those two worlds? Like that's where we play is, can we make development more efficient? Can we couple you to the resources we want? And then not lose operational capability of this, whether it's on security, that's sort of our lane that we like to stick in, but okay. it's changing really quick. It's, but I love it. That's the fun part of being in tech is uh, uh, hardware changes, software changes, and you get to see people do pretty incredible things with it. Do you see it as a value proposition of Red Hat that you're able to scale so drastically? I mean, if you think about other, I'll just say other software companies, the idea that they would be able to take their software platform and scale it up to a huge data center and then shrink it way down to run on a tiny little microprocessor, like this just doesn't exist in a lot of other industries. How does that help Red Hat stand out to its partners and its customers? You know, I think part of the credit 
goes to Red Hat. I appreciate our engineering team. Part of the credit goes to open source as well, where we pick, we pick platforms or technologies that have that um, critical mass in mm -hmm. open source. So you get a ton of innovation of shrinking Kubernetes or RHEL to embedded environments mm -hmm. was not just us, but we add what I think is a really valuable layer of like, we will partner with a few providers. You will know it will boot. We'll mm -hmm. apply our life cycles to it. We'll keep it secure. But we get to tap into a lot of that innovation in open source as well, which I think is why you see us able to move faster than a lot of proprietary models, where mm -hmm. it would be all on your engineers. For us, I feel like it's like half the world at this yeah. point. And then we have to add that enterprise stability, hardware partnerships to it, um, predictability. Mm -hmm. but we don't have to do all the R&D innovation ourselves. Can you talk about, I want to take you way back, your earliest days with technology when you were first exploring Linux and open source. Yeah, yeah. You know, what did that look like by way of the resources that were available to you and what role did open source play in allowing you to explore technology back then? I, in my earliest days, so I went to school for computer engineering, so mm -hmm. I was a, a processor design mm -hmm. guy. And and in that, you do some software, but your software stack's like assembly. By the time I got yeah. to C, you're like VHDL and assembly in C is like, this is a higher level language right here. Uh, and when I was coming out of school, it was the, the dot-com boom and then collapse mm -hmm. with it. Software was the, that was the way that you stayed employed as a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't processor design or those areas. The way I learned software mm -hmm. was from open source. Like you basically had, you had books, you'd go to the Barnes and Noble's borders and like yeah. read all the books you could. But going through the Linux kernel mm -hmm. and seeing how it was actually the 2.6 kernel book, man, that was the most impactful view on software. It's like, this is the way you can solve all these problems. The code is there. I can understand it. I can change it. I can experiment. That was about 100 times more impactful to me than, than a book that I would read and theoretically know it. Yeah. This I could get my hands on. I could sort of learn from the best and then apply and change and tweak. That's when I fell in love with open source was in, uh, in that shift from hardware to, and that's why I started with the Linux kernel because mm -hmm. I was a hardware guy. Mm -hmm. Getting into the software world it was a very natural space to start to learn. So going off of that then, how do you plan to use your position in leadership to kind of leverage Red Hat to support, the, not that they're not already doing this, but to further support the community and innovation for the next generation and the next people, the next, you know, the next generation that's coming up to do these things? Yeah, this for us, this is why I love our model on it. E even if we pick our communities carefully mm -hmm. and well, but whether it's backstage on the Red Hat Developer Hub, Every community we pick, we're going to contribute into. Like I feel like that is a, that's what keeps open source whole. Mm -hmm. Instead of picking a community, packaging it, shipping it, drafting off it, mm -hmm. uh, that active contribution to it lets us do our ten percent or twenty percent that makes thriving mm -hmm. projects on. And then for me, those projects are accessible to the next me. That's mm -hmm. there. There might not be a customer but they can see how Backstage solved developer problems or the kernel solved crazy edge problems or um, the work we're doing on OpenShift AI, mm -hmm. how we're approaching training or distribution. Um, all of those are available and I, I love that. I'm like, what was available to me in the 
in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Just think of the amount of software you can learn from today. It's it's close to infinite on that, but it's it's really powerful. I think about the or I, I see what is changing in the world and how companies and countries are choosing to what they value and, and that sort of thing. As a U.S.-based company, is there an inherent security advantage to other companies, other U.S.-based companies that are looking towards, they say, hey, you know, we want things designed, right. we want the security, we want to be able to audit and we want it made here. Is there an advantage that Red Hat has there? You know, I think we always will invest in um, ISO certifications and FedRAMP capabilities. Um, we sell them to the public sector quite a bit, mm -hmm. and that is, that's of critical importance there. At the other point, though, curated open source, because mm -hmm. open source is there's really no country boundary to it. Right. Understanding the curation and, you know, in the U.S. we'll focus on SBOMs and those standards. Knowing that, like, that's not U.S. dependent. The music in my ears means we're out of time. Hey, thanks for listening this hour. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. You can follow the show at Ask Noah Show. Hey, we invite you to go over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. That's where you'll find all of the articles and references we use to make the show each and every week. We'll see you back here next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.